I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome to On the Bench. I am your host, Brendan Sinone, and we have a, a different type of episode for you today, uh, one that I'm extremely excited about. I have two friends, two colleagues who I have immense respect for joining us here on the bench, both from ESPN, Andrea Adelson and David Hale. They together combine to write an extremely thorough, in-depth, well-reported, well-written story about the decline of Florida State football. It's on ESPN right now. It's called, quote, they're in a deep, deep hole, unquote, colon, inside the six-year unraveling of Florida State football. Uh, first off, thanks to both of you for joining me. Uh, David Hill taught me that I shouldn't feel guilty about uh, covering a game hungover, and Andrea taught me how to cut pizza properly. So that, that's your biggest contributions that you made to my life, and those are important ones. Thanks for joining me, guys. Um, I wish I could say that I had more important journalism lessons to, <laughs> to pass on to anyone, but that's actually at the top of the list. So, and and I've only gotten better at it over the years too. <laughs> <laughs> We were, we were on a we were on a Zoom meeting yesterday with one of our editors, and Andrea was talking about the time she had a migraine covering a Florida State game, and thought she was going to puke at noon. And I was like, I wanted to puke at noon for a Florida State game. Too. <laughs> now people are just puking at noon for Florida State games, or puking four hours later, and it's not even alcohol induced; it's just product related, which is which is kind of the reason why you guys are on this podcast today is to talk about this this crazy decline uh, for Florida State football. Real quick, though, I want to. Uh, thank our sponsors at Market Square Liquors and the Lounge at Market Square. Appropriate that that they're our sponsor for this football season. <laughs> Hale, when you were in Tallahassee, did you ever uh, partake in the lounge? A very sophisticated. Uh, I, I don't think I was allowed to go anywhere sophisticated when I was uh, in Tallahassee, uh, but I would now. I wish I, you know, I gotta. It, when 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 this coronavirus pandemic is over, I need to make my way back down to Tallahassee, and I will I will try to be slightly more sophisticated than the last time. All right, keep it clean. No COVID talk on the podcast, David. Wow. Uh, <laughs> Andrew, and Andrew, you're a, a food buff. Uh, what's your favorite place when you're in Tallahassee to uh, when you were able to travel to to partake in uh, fine dining when you're when you're in town here? Cool Beans Cafe. No okay. hesitation. I am there every single time I'm in Tallahassee, except I believe they're closed on Mondays. They're they closed one weird, day of the week. Weird, weird hours, uh, which is one reason that I stopped going there because I couldn't keep uh, track with it. But, but it is very good. That was my go-to like date place, too. I would take uh, take many a date there to act like I was fancy back in the day. <laughs> the thing, the thing I like about it. off for like about a half, half right. hour, and then, they, then, then the truth was uncovered. I like it because when I'm alone on the road, which is all the time, you can sit at the bar there and watch them make the food and you don't feel as judged when you're by yourself drinking wine. <laughs> so you have company with you. That's that's helpful. <laughs> uh, so let's let's get into the story here. The I guess well, two part question. Uh, what was the genesis? And Andrew, I'll start with you. What was the genesis of, of this idea? And, and then how long did it take uh, the two of you guys to 
to report and write this? Like how, how long, how much, how long has this been in the works for? We started talking about doing a story, I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago. And we talked about it. All right, let's make some calls. And then other things come up and it gets pushed to the side. So finally in July, David said, enough is enough. We're doing the story. Like, let's just go for it. I'm going to start. And I was like, okay, you're right. You're right. And then coronavirus happened with all the intricacies of football. So essentially we've been working on this since July with a lot of stops and starts because of all the other regular football stuff that we have to do. And um, we both connected with the people that we have gotten to know throughout the course of covering Florida State. I live in Orlando. David Hale covered Florida State for ESPN for many years in Tallahassee. So we just had a large bank of sources and connections uh, on both Jimbo Fisher's staff and Willie Taggart's staff and inside the administration and Seminole Boosters. And those were all the key players involved. And so many phone calls, many late nights, uh, many struggles and frustration, all in the hopes of trying to tell as complete and balanced a story as we could. Yeah, I, I remember, I think really the biggest turning point in wanting to do it, because as Andrea said, we've been sort of kicking it around for a long time, but um, it was sort of the combination of, of Andy Miller stepping down, which really feels like, I mean, it was sort of like a bout in retirement in a lot of ways. Like people who don't follow Florida State closely, I don't think will ever grasp what a massive figure within FSU athletics and Tallahassee that Andy Miller was. And, and him stepping down is sort of a changing of the guard that allowed people to take a little bit of a, all right, maybe we should take a look back at where we've been. And, and then the, the budget cuts that they made, I mean, I, you know, Brandon, I'm sure you felt the same way. I mean, we have friends who got laid off there. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and it's hard not to ask yourself in a moment like that, like, well, you know, well, how do we get here? What, what, what led to, to a school like this having to make these kind of decisions? And this was decisions made before all of the coronavirus impact was really felt. Um, and so I, I think a lot of us, Andrea and I, the more we talked about it, we were like, you know, up until now, there's probably people who didn't really want to re-examine this. But I think there really felt like a, this summer felt like a time in which everybody was ready to say like, all right, we know some mistakes have been made. We're ready to talk about it. I think there was some people who wanted to correct what they thought was kind of an imperfect narrative about where blame belonged. There were some people who were just frustrated at where things were and wanted to see changes. Um, and it just sort of was a perfect storm where people were happy to talk and that in our, in our shoes as reporters, uh, we were happy to listen and we did a lot of it. And, uh, I think the story comes out at about nine thousand words. It could have been it could have been twice that easily. Uh, we could write a whole another story on the stuff that we left out of it. But the goal was hopefully to kind of showcase all sides of this, um, and hopefully it came out balanced. We we spent some sleepless nights trying to get it there. What was David the? And you mentioned all the reporting you guys have done, uh, and with your history covering Florida State and the ACC, uh, both of you have, have better part of, of a decade at least covering this program God to rolled. some extent. <laughs> let's, <laughs> now let's, com let's combine your experience. Uh, so, David, what what was the, I guess, the part that was 
in doing this reporting, the re- what was the biggest revelation? Like what surprised you? What was something that maybe became clear that you had an indication of that became crystallizing? Uh, the one detail that that made it into the story that that really stuck out to you? There's a lot of stuff that you sort of kind of know. You know, if you've gotten, if you've been around Florida State and you understand how the the politics of Tallahassee work and the inner machinations of of sort of the culture within Florida State, there's a lot of stuff that you sort of assume. And this story really confirmed a lot of that. Um, I think the biggest thing for me that that I was not really expecting going in was the idea that of how close maybe Jimbo was to staying at Florida State. That I, I think. You know, the, the, the Texas A&M offer, I think there was a lot of pressure on him to take it. I think the money was there. I think it was sort of like, hey, I don't have to fight any battles anymore. I can go to A&M and get all the stuff I ever wanted. But I didn't realize how much his heart was still in Florida State. Like, I, I, I think, and I was told by probably a half dozen people who would know that up until that last week, um, he really was hopeful that they could find common ground and he could stay at Florida state and that him leaving was while probably a, a smart professional decision, a really, really difficult personal decision for him. And um, look, it's easy to view Jimbo as a villain in all of this. uh, And a lot of people will. And Jimbo is, I think from an outsider's perspective, if you look at Jimbo, he is a tough guy that is not maybe the easiest person to like. Uh, but as numerous, numerous people said, and, and I think as, as all of us have seen at various times uh, when we've interacted with him, but behind that facade, there is a genuine person. And when he shows that to someone, um, you know, I think that emotion comes through and, and talking to people about what those last few weeks at Florida State were like for him. I think I had underappreciated just how emotional and difficult that was for him. Andrea, same question to you, I guess, what in your reporting kind of kind of stuck out the most and kind of hit you over the head to say this is this is something I had really no idea that this existed to this extent before before we start digging in. I agree with David. Everybody that I talked to said um, Jimbo didn't want to leave. Even going into 2017 when people thought he already had one foot out the door because he'd been talking to LSU and that became a big story. He felt he could be the next Bobby Bowden at Florida State. And I had several players tell me they should have just given him the money. He should have never left. They should have just given Jimbo everything that he wanted. I think a couple of other things really stuck out. All the players unilaterally defended Jimbo Mm -hmm. in everything that Mm -hmm. happened. No one blamed him. And even more interestingly, everybody I talked to who uh, coached or was with Willie Taggart did not blame Jimbo either. They all felt that they had no idea what they were walking into and they immediately saw and understood why Jimbo fought so hard to get the money for facility improvements and how difficult it was to get anything done with the power structure and the dynamic the way that it was at Florida State. I think a third thing that really stuck out to me in all the people that I've talked to and I think we both talked to people in every single camp, you know, administration, Seminole Boosters, Jimbo, Taggart. The only folks who accepted any blame were on the Willie Taggart side. Hmm. The only ones who said we made mistakes were on the Willie Taggart side. 
I didn't hear anybody tell me anywhere else we could have done this better. We should have done this better. Maybe we should have tried a little harder here or there. And I thought that was really interesting because quite honestly, mistakes were made on all sides. There is enough blame to go around for everybody who's been involved inside that program. And Willie Taggart, who you could argue came into a very difficult situation and did make mistakes and made it worse, no question. Those folks who coached with him and under him and played for him um, didn't really um, feel as if they had a fair shake, but also understood that he made mistakes that ended up costing him. So there's a lot to unwrap, which makes sense. It's a 9,000 word story and, and thoroughly reported. Like to get 50 people to talk for a story on background, even uh, not not on you know not off record, but on background is is so hard to do. So again, kudos to you guys. But there's so much to unpack here, and I'm trying to think of the right place to kind of start going uh, in, in the time that we have. You guys both mentioned Jimbo and the way he was perceived by his players, uh, the way he was perceived by administration, by boosters. And these are very different ways he, he's looked at. Uh, did you end up viewing him? I know after reading the article, I almost saw him as kind of sympathetic, uh, as balanced as the story was. I mean, there was the side of him that we already knew that was kind of the gruff, uh, jackass type of, type of guy, very power hungry <laughs> in some uh, extent, but then also... Uh, the human part of him too, and, and the loyalty that that players had to him. How did you guys perceive him as, uh, would you say he was either sympathetic, uh, more of the villain? Like how, how did he come off when you're writing the story in your mind? You know, I had somebody very close to Jimbo that told me that they described him as like Jimbo. And this is the thing I heard. I mean, even back in like 2012 and 13, people would say it, but I don't think I really grasped the, uh, significance of it all until putting a story like this together that Jimbo had two mentors in college football. One was Nick Saban and one was Bobby Bowden. And he desperately wanted to be like both of them, but they are two very different people. And it really, I think showcases that two sides, that duality of Jimbo Fisher and that he was a uh, uh, very micromanaging, wanted to get ahead, success at all costs, uh, you know, let's all get behind football and do it my way, Nick Saban person. But he loved the sort of family idea of I'm going to build this legacy. Uh, this school is going to be, you know, synonymous with me. Um, I, you know, I get behind. He's, you know, loyal to a fault for the guys that were in his circle. And, I, you know, all of that stuff felt very Bowden-esque. And, I think this was sort of at the heart of where a lot of the problems were. It's like, if you're going to be a Bobby Bowden school and you want to be a Bobby Bowden coach, you're going to do things one way. And that way pluses and minuses to, to that decision. And if you're going to do it the Nick Saban way, then you got to do it that way. And I think even down to Jimbo Fisher at throughout that entire era, no one was quite sure which side of that fence they wanted to be on because they saw the, the positives to both sides and were frustrated by the negatives of both sides. And that to me just sums up not just Jimbo, but Florida State during that whole era. And in, in a lot of ways, I think I think is still sort of the big question that's being wrestled with. I mean, I, the, the, the analogy that I used in this story was that Florida State had a lot of success as sort of the last great mom and pop store in college football. And now college football is much more of a, uh, you know, 
Wall Street, Silicon Valley, big business enterprise than it was during Bowden's era. And I don't, I don't know if that mom and pop store works anymore. Um, but it's who those it's ingrained in the culture and and there's nothing wrong with it. It's just I don't I don't know how much it works. And I think that was what Jimbo wrestled with too. I think what really was interesting in a lot of the conversations that I had was Jimbo had his reasons for wanting all of the upgrades that he kept demanding. He saw Clemson coming. He saw what Clemson was building under Dabo. He saw the unified vision that they had for Clemson football. He wanted that for Florida State because he knew if he didn't have it, eventually Clemson was going to overtake them. And what happened was Jimbo was so demanding, he could never explain why he needed these things without being combative and angry. Mm -hmm. And when you're trying to build relationships with your administration or your donor, Seminole Boosters, there has to be a little bit of a give and take. There has to be a relationship. And there was no relationship. So while Jimbo's requests are valid, look at what Clemson has, look at where Florida is going with their standalone uh, that they're building, $85 million. They've finally made investments. Jimbo knew he needed that, but he couldn't really articulate it in a way that didn't tick people off. And he ticked a lot of important people off to the point where they stopped listening. And that is never a good situation to be in when you're trying to run an elite power program that's trying to win championships. And when you look at Florida, you know, for example, and I'll use them because, you know, they're they're down the road. Florida was in almost Florida State situation 10 years ago. They had had all this success under Urban Meyer. They make a bad coaching hire. They're asking for facility upgrades. Jeremy Foley, the athletic director at the time, refused. Florida went through years where the facilities there were what they were when I was a student in the 90s. And they fell behind in recruiting. And they made some bad football hires. And they struggled for years and years. Florida State fans aren't used to this. They never had a bad coaching hire before. Willie Taggart was the first one that they've had, that they can remember. So while it looks great what Florida is doing right now, they went through many, many years in the wilderness where they had to figure out what their vision was going to be. And I think that's what Florida State needs to do right now. So Andrew, you know, I, uh, oh, sorry, go uh, ahead, David. Sorry, I don't, um, it's, it, uh, to, to sort of that point, I, I think one of the things that gets, we didn't really talk about the story because it's inherently a Florida State story, is that, when you compare them to Clemson, the, the big difference is not that, that Jimbo and Gabo had this vastly different vision for their programs, or even that there were people at Clemson who would be willing to spend the money and weren't at Florida State or any of that. It's that Gabo is maybe the single best salesman in college football today, mm -hmm. and Jimbo was not. Jimbo, again, looked at Saban, who just had to snap his fingers and things happened. And Jimbo didn't understand why that didn't happen at Florida State for him, too. Dabo does understand why it doesn't happen that way. And so he will sell people on a vision. I think when Dabo is selling people on a vision, he wants you to join as a partner in that vision, whereas Jimbo kind of sold it as like, this is my vision. 
go do the things I'm telling you to do. And and and, and look, again, for Saban, that has worked because there's a very specific infrastructure at, at Alabama that I don't know how repeatable that is anywhere, let alone at Florida State. But, you know, it, it, to Andrew's point, a lot of this comes back to Jimbo was selling the right things with the wrong sales pitch. Let's try to get into this. I'll throw this to Andrea, but I do want both of your thoughts on it. The the booster structure at FSU, uh, and it's obviously changing now uh, with with the way they they have it. Uh, but at the time, well, one Florida State didn't have the the deep pockets that uh, Clemson or Alabama or A and M has, as we well know. Currently, uh, the financial situation is pretty dire. Uh, so that's part of it. Jimbo's frustration, as you noted in the story, was he wasn't able to snap his fingers and get everything he wanted. But also, he saw money being allocated to uh, other areas other than the football program, other than the infrastructure for football. And, and that always confused him and, and angered him and baffled him to anyone who would listen. Uh, he, he would tell you he, he didn't like that. The booster structure, Andrew, can you kind of explain why that dynamic? Well, one, was it as prehistoric? Because you cover the ACC. Was what FSU was doing up to like a, a, a year ago as prehistoric as some make it out to, to seem? And two, uh, why wasn't it working with the boosters and Jimbo Fisher towards the end? What was the disconnect? Yes, it was prehistoric and unheard of, quite honestly. I've covered a lot of programs and I've never seen a structure the way that Florida State had it with the Seminole boosters. And it was explained to me the reason that was put into place by Dave Hart. Uh, former athletic director was basically um, when something didn't go right, he had somebody else to blame. It didn't necessarily have to be on the athletic department. And so that dynamic worked uh, for a long time, especially with Bobby Bowden, you know, in that era when we weren't talking about football as a corporation, uh, Bobby Bowden had no problem going out and being the salesman and, and talking up Florida State football and Andy Miller was out there raising the money. Uh, and so that dynamic worked. But with Jimbo, uh, the demands on the finances were something that they had never encountered with Bobby Bowden as the head coach. And that, I think, took everybody by surprise. I'm not sure how many folks inside Seminole Boosters understood the way that other power structures worked, particularly at the elite level in college football, where football dictates what's going to be happening and you need to fall into line if you want to have a competitive program. Whether that's the right way of doing things, that's another debate. But that's how it works at programs like Alabama, LSU, places like that, that are highly successful and bring in a lot of money from their boosters. And so when you have a guy like Jimbo who's constantly demanding and not working on building these relationships, you can only go back to your same handful of donors and ask for money. And they kept asking and asking. There was donor fatigue. The relationship with Andy and with Jimbo, it just never worked. It never worked. And David Hale did some good reporting on how that all fell apart and some of the conversations that he had. It started with the Kids First Fund that Jimbo wanted for Ethan, who had Fanconi anemia, his son, and they wanted this fundraising campaign. And the Seminole Boosters were mad that Jimbo wanted to ask their same donors for money to support that. Jimbo took that personally, and Jimbo took a lot of things personally, and that affected relationships across the board. And Seminole Boosters and Jimbo Fisher did not have a great relationship with athletic director Stan Wilcox. So that all came to a head and it got to the point where none of them were on speaking terms 
and could speak to each other, be in the same room. So that dynamic really impacted where Florida State is, was, and I think the way that they've restructured everything is going to be hugely beneficial for all parties. Yeah, one of the things that um, I think was one of the best quotes in this story was one that uh, Andrea had gotten from uh, one of Taggart's folks that after Taggart was fired, his quote was essentially like, you know, right or wrong about whether Taggart deserved to be fired. What does it say when you fire a coach after 21 games about the buy-in on that coach from the beginning, from day one? And the, the end of the quote was something to the effect of like, we all had to ask, like, who is in charge here? And that was the big question because Jimbo thought he was in charge because his football program was the one bringing in all the money. And Stan and the athletics department thought they were in charge because they're the athletics department. But Seminole Boosters was the one funding a big portion of the athletics department. And they thought, we're going out and getting you the money. We're the ones that are in charge. We get to decide how that money gets spent. And no one was on the same page about things. And again, you would hear about Andy Miller wouldn't go to, he would send a proxy to meetings with Stan Wilcox because he, didn't want to have to meet with Stan and Stan and Jimbo didn't even speak for uh, large portions of time. Um, you know, it's just uh, when you talk about Clemson having this unified vision and you ask, how did they get there? And that's a whole other story. What was clear is there was no unified vision there. And in fact, <laughs> the, the competing visions didn't even want to speak to each other. Uh, let's get into Stan Wilcox. Uh so when we were talking about this before the podcast and I was giving you guys some, some thoughts on the story that who was the villain, who was the sympathetic figure. And again, you could say Jimbo Fisher comes off as both in that Willie Taggart uh, certainly comes off as more, more so uh, sympathetic in that uh, seminal booster structure, Andy Miller, like shows that there's pros and cons. Like there's to all everyone except for Stan Wilcox is the only one in the story that I feel like comes out as, as, as no one really getting along with. I don't know if that's just him being in the middle, uh, but the, the top quote, like the one that, that I love is early on in the story. And it just shows how much disdain Jimbo Fisher had to Florida state's athletic director at the time, Stan Wilcox. It was before the suspension, the full game suspension with, uh, with Jameis Winston. And he goes uh, on the phone with Jameis's dad uh, that son of a bitch cave to the media. And that was about Stan Wilcox. Uh, David, can you do that? Can you do the Jimbo? I can't do it. I, you were always better at the Jimbo impersonation <laughs> than I was. Uh, that showed the disdain there for, for Stan Wilcox that Jimbo had. And I knew they didn't like working together, but uh, I don't know. Whoever got this, this anecdote, this was a huge, huge detail of the story. Uh, Jimbo legitimately wanted Stan gone and, and had an ultimatum uh, who, who uncovered that. And, uh, was that shocking to, to you that it was actually like an ultimatum? Like, I, I want him out of here. Um, yeah, I got that. Uh, you know, it's funny because I think to start off with this, yes, Stan does not come off as the most sympathetic figure in the story. But the funny thing is, if we were writing a Florida State basketball story, Stan would be a hero. He would be a hero. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So so part of the problem with Stan and I, try, I, I tried to get to it in this story, but this is uh, from several folks that kind of control purse strings at Florida State that pointed to this as a little bit of the, the one of the overarching problems of Florida State is that the FSU's athletics department and the university as a whole has a mantra of comprehensive excellence. They want to be good across the board. Uh, fighting for director's cup standings matters at Florida State. It doesn't matter at all at Alabama or Clemson or Miami. Um, the, the schools that are usually at the top of the Director's Cup are, are, are 
Ohio State and Texas that have a gajillion dollars to spend, or you know North Carolina and Stanford that that are private schools with with private endowments and and lots of folks pushing that stuff. Florida State's sort of the odd man out in those standings, and it sort of goes with what. Stan was following along with sort of the marching orders of we are a comprehensive, excellent school. We're not going to focus all of our resources on just football. And and to his credit, some of that decision making has put basketball in the position that it's in right now, which is great. But the money is still coming from football. And and especially if you're Jimbo Fisher and you came from working under Nick Saban in the SEC, you scratch your head at that and say, that's that's a stupid way for us to do business as a football school. Um, so, so that's part of it. Like Stan wasn't necessarily wrong. It's just a matter of where you want to put your priorities. But that always frustrated Jimbo. And, and Jimbo, as you said, was an emotional guy. And he was not beneath uh, making ultimatums. And, and the Wilcox thing was one of them. And I think you saw a lot of times in this story where power players overplayed their hands a little bit. And I think that ultimatum on Stan was uh, one of those times that Jimbo overplayed his hand a little bit because I think Stan and, and, and President Thrasher were more on the same page than Jimbo assumed they were. And, uh, you know, one of the other really funny anecdotes that that didn't end up making it into the final version of this story uh, that I heard is somebody uh, on from Fisher's camp said, you know, Andy didn't get along with Stan or Jimbo and Jimbo didn't get along with Stan or Andy and Stan didn't get along with Jimbo or Andy. But it's like, Andy and Jimbo had just teamed up at any point, this all would have been different. But the fact that at no point did two of the three members get on the same page. And I really think that the Jimbo and Stan's relationship was less contentious. I don't, I think Jimbo more viewed Stan as an empty suit than as a genuine bad figure in this, but because he was always battling with somebody else, he needed somebody there that was going to be on his side. And Stan was not that. And so his, his frustration was more of, I need my AD to be an advocate for me, not an impediment for me. And that's why he wanted Stan gone. Not because he hated Stan Wilcox, but just because he needed somebody more on his team in that role. And if you talk to the folks uh, in Willie Taggart's camp, they love Stan Wilcox. And they'll tell you that when Stan left, they alarm bells started ringing and that was before they even coached a football game because they felt Stan was going to be a big advocate for them. And then they didn't have that anymore once he left. And from the booster perspective on Stan, very similar to what we just talked about with Jimbo, Stan was not a guy who was going to go out of his way to shake hands and build relationships and make you feel warm and welcomed and none of that. You know, one booster told me you'd go into the suite and Stan would never even acknowledge your presence. And again, that also rubbed a lot of boosters the wrong way, because if you're a donor, you want to be wooed. You want to feel like I'm important, that I matter here, that my money uh, is meaningful and my support is meaningful. And Stan never provided that support at least from the boosters that I talked to. And then when Stan would show up at at football practice, he wouldn't talk to anybody. He'd just stand there. And so there was no give and take again. You know, it's a very similar theme here. What we talked about with Jimbo earlier, Stan is not a people person and Jimbo is not a people person. And in that role at Florida State, you have to be, you have to sell 
your donors. You have to get everybody on the same page. And I think the fact that neither one of them could do that is also uh, one of the big issues uh, in, in this story. As a as a socially awkward person myself, I can spot <laughs> one a thousand miles away. I know an introvert when I see one, and that was always one thing I viewed with Stan. He was just uncomfortable in a lot of social situations. It's a yeah. tough job to have yeah. if you have that sort of anxiety or uncomfortability dealing with people. Like you said, Andrea, you have to shake a lot of hands. Uh, the, the one thing, though, with Stan, that, and then we'll move on. I know you have to go soon, Andrea. Uh, the, the one dynamic here that I can't get around is the detail that you guys had on Stan not accounting for a full buyout of Willie Taggart's contract with Oregon, not having, and that was multiple sources had, had confirmed that to you. Uh, please explain that to our listeners. Like how, how does that happen uh, for someone in an athletic director position and how much money do you believe he didn't account for when getting deep into those negotiations? Yeah. So I want to be a little bit careful about how I explain okay. this. Uh, but the long and short of it is, you know, the, the buyout was not just the buyout from Oregon. It was also the buyout from USF that right. Oregon was supposed to be paying. Um, and I think part of the problem was, uh, you know, when Stan wanted to hire a minority coach, and that's a relatively, unfortunately, a relatively thin pool of candidates. Uh, and he didn't think he was going to be able to get Willie Taggart because Willie was in year one at Oregon and Oregon's got a lot of booster money to spend. And then they said, no, Willie loves Florida State and it's his dream job and he would probably come. And at that point, Stan was just sort of myopic in his vision of like, got to get this guy. And it's, I mean, you look at the timeline, Jimbo's last day was December 1st and they were announcing Willie Taggart on December 4th, I think it was. Like, what does that tell you about the amount of due diligence that went into that whole process? Legitimately, uh, Jimmy Sexton was on campus. We saw him talk to Jimbo as he gave, uh, as Jimbo went to go do his, uh, drop off his resignation letter, which you guys discuss uh, some of that dynamic in the article. So we saw that, uh, that I was told by a pretty good source that from the Willie Taggart camp that Jimmy Sexton then drove up to, uh, to talk to uh, president Thrasher and start negotiating Willie Taggart's contract, like with it, really, within, which is a great industry for Jimmy Sexton, by the way. That's you've just, got it. Everybody in the world should want to be Jimmy Sexton. Like I just remember, <laughs> I just remember typing out like a sentence about the Willie Taggart contract and mentioning Jimmy Sexton and then having to put in parentheses, Sexton also represents Fisher and Mike Norvell. And Mike Norvell, yes. (laughs) My God, this man has done things right. (laughs) Uh, All right. So I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that, Andrea. I know you have to go in a few minutes. I had one more question for you before uh, you go, but I want to give you the chance to expound on on anything more Wilcox related before I, uh, I let you run. It wasn't just that. There were several folks who pointed out that he made budgets using revenue figures that were simply not going to happen in 2017 uh, when you're going off of the money they made in 14. And so that also impacted the financial situation that Florida State is in. So you're right in that people piled on to Stan and Stan, you know, did not want to speak to us for valid reasons, and I understand. So the portrait of Stan is a little bit unbalanced because you've got Jimbo's folks and the Seminole Boosters who did not like Stan. The one thing they could agree on. Piling on. Yes. And there's nobody really defending Stan, you know, uh-huh. in the story. But it's not just basketball, right? I mean, there's a reason... John Thrasher gave him a raise and a promotion uh, that just angered Jimbo to no end because 
softball, you know, is doing well. We know that the track and field programs highly successful. You know, David mentioned soccer, obviously both basketball programs. And when you look at where Florida State is in those Learfield Cup standings, which, you know, to the general public, who cares? But folks in athletics and administration, they care a lot. Mm-hmm. So Florida State is ahead of Clemson and some of their natural rivals because they did put into place this plan for comprehensive excellence. So yes, Stan gets, you know, uh, a lot of stuff thrown his way from a football perspective, but he really did help a lot of the programs at Florida State that were not football. Hey, last question for Andrea, and I'll, and I'll let you run. Uh, I remember when Jimbo Fisher left, a lot of the conversation uh, nationally was about facilities and you were in town in Tallahassee not too long after and went on a Twitter a Twitter spree of posting pictures of FSU's moderate facilities and obviously there's work to be done FSU's still in the process of doing that Uh, they have gotten lapped by a lot of major programs in college football Uh, but in your mind uh, do you think Jimbo was unfair with how he portrayed it both publicly and then secondly, like, was there some sabotage on Jimbo's end kind of that, that it seemed like everyone in the national media started piling on FSU's facilities around the same time, which always bugged people here in Tallahassee, uh, kind of rubbed them the wrong way. So I happened to be in Charlotte for the ACC championship game that Miami was going to be playing against Clemson when my phone rang and said, Jimbo is out. You need to go to Tallahassee right now. So I left Charlotte and got on a plane to Tallahassee and I stayed there until Willie Taggart was announced because we knew it was forthcoming as we just talked about. And there was so much anger at Florida State about the way Jimbo threw the program under the bus in his comments that he made at A&M about the lack of facilities that folks there were like, we just spent you know, $36 million upgrading everything he wanted us to upgrade. He wanted a standalone football facility. We know that. We were working on it. In fact, two days before he left, they had the firm Populist, an architecture firm, in town in Tallahassee to go over plans for a standalone football facility. Jimbo did not show up for that meeting. It was that Tuesday (laughs) of the week. That uh, that he decided that it wasn't going to work anymore at Florida State. And so I had folks at Florida State telling me this, like, yes, we know he wanted the standalone football facility. But here at Florida State, you can't snap your fingers and make it happen. It's a long process. And they had started the process. In fact, that firm had been to Tallahassee several times to talk to Jimbo about what he wanted. What's the vision? What can we do here? So the folks at Florida State were upset because they had just spent all this money. It wasn't good enough. Nothing was ever good enough. And they knew they had started the process to try and get a football facility done. And now here's Jimbo, you know, uh, expletive word all over the facilities. Um, And and look, A&M has You you could swear on this podcast if you want. I'm not going to (laughs) swear. That son of a a bitch caved to the media. Yeah, see, uh, I'll I'll let you use the word. My husband gets on me for swearing too much Okay, because I'm a mom and I shouldn't swear. I don't know. But, um, you know, I've been over to to A&M. I spent, you know, the following season with Jimbo in in 2018. They've got palaces compared to what Florida State has, but they've also got oil money and donors who are willing to spend bazillions of dollars. Florida State doesn't have that. The dynamic at A&M is so completely different than the dynamic at Florida State. 
And so I just thought it was instructive to say, hey, yeah, it might not be perfect, but Florida State has invested money. And by the way, at that time in 2017, those Florida State facilities were better than what Florida had. And that's that's a fact. That's the truth. So that was kind of the the feeling that I got in Tallahassee those six days that I was there. And I think there's still a lot of anger and resentment at Jimbo for um, for blaming Florida State and not taking accountability maybe for some of the mistakes that he made. I know you have to run, Andrea. I'll let you go. David, can I keep you for a few more minutes? Is that cool? Sure. We're going to talk so much crap on. Oh, uh, yeah, Andrea. Andrea. We're, we're gonna, I we're expect gonna, it. Yes, yeah, so we, we talked about this already. All right. We're all, right. all right, Andrea. Thank you so much. Uh, kudos. Great job. Thank you for joining us. All right. Thanks for having us, Brendan. Really appreciate it. For sure. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, Roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, David, what do you want to say about Andrea first now that she's gone? You know, she just ruined this story for me. It was going to be so good. No, I, uh, <laughs> this is this is one of the, you know, people people smack talk uh, ESPN a good bit. But this is the joy of getting to work at ESPN is I don't I didn't have to do all the heavy lifting for a story <laughs> like this because Andrea is so much better at her job than I am at mine. I, I think you're both very, very good at your jobs, but you're 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 a modest guy. I get it. So uh <laughs> All right. There's a few things I want to go over. I won't keep it too much longer, David, but there, there's a couple things I want to kind of wrap this up with. Um, do you think Mike Norvell had a clear understanding of the cluster? You know what, that he walked into here with the dysfunction and the weird power structure and dynamics. Do you think he had a good idea of that from the people you've talked to? Uh, I, I'm sure he had an idea. It's sort of like, <laughs> you know, sometimes you just can't be properly prepared for exactly how things are you know like people can tell you this is this is what you're going to run into there but you don't really know until you're into it and uh no i don't think there's any chance mike norvell knew what this past year was going to be like both from the culture inside the locker room i mean yeah you know you walk in as the third coach in in four years that you're going to have some real trust issues with players you're going to have some guys who are going to be really tough to buy in and then of course nobody could have prepared for the coronavirus aspect of all of this um, and then look, I mean, the money was always going to be 
uh, a little bit of an issue. The budget is a problem at Florida State right now. And then again, you add in a pandemic to it that has wreaked more havoc on finances. I mean, there's really just nothing that is going Mike Norvell's way right now. And this is one of the things that every single person that I talked to said is like, I think Mike Norvell's a pretty good coach. This is not a quick fix for him. <laughs> um, and I, I, part of Willie's problem, I think, was that he believed it was a, a quick fix. And he told people it was going to be a quick fix. Yes. Whereas if, if the Willie Taggart era starts with him saying like, boy, getting here, we, we didn't realize quite where things were. Um, we want to, we don't want to put a bandaid on this. We want to do it the right way. I hope Pantons will stay with us through this as we try to build, rebuild the foundation, uh, that was kind of crumbling before we got here that maybe people viewed Taggart differently and viewed the struggles. Cause I mean, frankly, a six and seven season doesn't look so bad at this point. Yeah, right? you'd, you'd be signing up for it. Well, the, the issue is, Please correct me if I'm wrong here with Willie and and you guys get into this about the dynamics of him being an African-American coach. And I don't think two white guys is probably the best of us having the platform to talk about this uh, from our perspective. But but there is that dynamic that some people have written about and talked about that Willie Taggart was let go prematurely or got a shorter amount of time than other coaches would have because he was an African-American coach. Uh, My contention, the way I viewed it is what you mentioned, David him not just selling this job as a quick fix. I think he, when he had his introductory press, press conference as like a, just slap some paint on it uh, and, you know, we'll be good to go. I, I, it wasn't just that he sold it as that early on. It was a day or two before the Virginia tech game. He had no idea that was coming. I think he had yeah. no idea. There, oh, so there was a level of, of ineptitude of, of not having a grasp on the situation. I think that that concerned people internally. I don't know if you're reporting uh, said as much, but that that's kind of always how, how we perceived it was he had no idea what he was getting himself into. And that was the cause for concern. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm with you in that. I think there was certainly a segment of the fan base and probably boosters as well, who viewed Taggart through a different lens because he was a minority coach. Uh, I don't even know how much of that was strictly about him being a minority so much as, in some cases, did we limit our pool of potential hires too much? Did we do not do enough due diligence before we made this hire? Like, should we have been looking at other people? Did we get the best coach or did we get the best minority coach? Um, I think that was a little bit of it. But well, at the real end of the quick, day, David, on, on that fact, uh, what was the pool? It's in the story. We've heard, we had heard that Stan, I know, pre- preferred a minority coach but what you guys reported it was almost exclusively from from the people yeah. he was looking at uh, african-american coaches yeah i think that was the overwhelming consensus that we got was that he was wanting to hire an african-american coach uh and i should say a plan that was heartily endorsed by john thrasher mm-hmm. and the the powers that be with it within florida state um, but I mean, he was looking at Derek Mason at Vanderbilt, at Charlie Strong. I mean, would those guys have been any better than Willie Taggart? I, I don't know. I think if you had talked to enough people at Oregon, I think maybe some people would have given you a warning that maybe Taggart was not going to be a good fit there. Um, Willie Taggart had genuine problems as a head coach of Florida State. There were things that really did not go well. He was hamstrung in some areas. He certainly didn't have the full support of folks in other areas. Um, but at the end of the day, he was just not a very good coach at Florida State. And you can read the quotes from players in that story that are pretty damning about Willie Taggart's time there. 
uh, and even Taggart's folks will tell you like it didn't work out. I think he's a, a genuinely nice man who cared about his players. One of the, the dynamics that we kept coming back to is like Jimbo was so detail oriented and demanding on the field and pretty lax off the field with his players. And Willie was the exact opposite. He was very much trying to get these players into a better cultural place off the field, but just not very organized or detail oriented on the field. And what you really needed was somebody who was going to kind of do both. And, and that clearly didn't happen. So Florida State, I don't know that you would talk to anybody who said Florida State didn't need to move on from Willie Taggart. Now, did he get too short of a leash? Was it toxic from the beginning, unfairly? All of that stuff's probably true. But at the end of the day, I don't think that if they had given him five years, that things were going to be massively different because I think he's Willie Taggart and he is who he is. And I think it works at some places and Florida State is not one of those places where it was going to work. And right now, the situation that we're looking at with Mike Norvell, and granted, this is a different financial, uh, as bad as FSU's finances were when Willie Taggart took over, they're even worse now for the reasons you, you mentioned earlier, David. And also that the power structure is is changing as well and is different than what, what Willie Taggart stepped to do, both from the athletic director standpoint and the way the booster structure is set up. That's markedly different now for Mike Norvell. Uh, so this is not apples to apples, but as we look at what Mike Norvell has done in year one, uh, it's been obviously uh, just a, a strained, odd debacle of a year. That's not all entirely his fault. Uh, what do you look at from the reporting you've done, David, and just you know, paying attention to the ACC and the college football landscape? Like, where is the glimmer of hope for Norvell, for FSU, for the athletic department in general? Like, is there a path out of this that you can see, like through the through the weeds right now? So I think if there's the top of that list of, of potential silver linings in all of this or, or, or light at the end of the tunnel is Michael Offord, who is the guy who was hired from Central Michigan to replace Andy Miller. Um, I had one source tell me that's the best hire that Florida State has made in athletics in 30 years. Um, he is, I think, the personality that was needed in that he does have a vision he is a type A type of guy and that he is going to kind of pull people kicking and screaming towards that vision if need be, um, but would rather have a little more of a deft touch in doing it. I think he is working very hard on trying to unify people in that vision. He has talked about, uh, Andrea had a very long conversation with him and came away very impressed saying, you know, he's going on this sort of listening tour with each of his coaches and administrators and saying like, where do you see things? What do we have to do? I think he's being very, very blunt and honest in his assessment of things. He's not trying to make people feel better about it. Uh, he's just trying to get things moving in the right direction and get everybody on the same page. And to me, that if you take away anything from the reporting of this whole sort of six-year odyssey of decay in the program, it's that you need somebody that is going to get everybody in the boat paddling in the same direction. And I think Michael Offord can be that guy. Um, you know, I, I honestly, I, I have not read the final version of this story and we went through so many of them, but we did have a quote, uh, from, from, uh, the wonderful Freddie Stevenson, um, who was essentially like, and if, if, if these players aren't embarrassed by being a laughing stock right now, I don't know what to tell you, but like you either make the decision to stop being a laughing stock and start buying in, or you're going to keep getting laughed at. And I think there's a little bit of, of 
maybe some hope in in something that sounds awful, but like a, this is a ripping the bandaid off season. And after this is over, Mike Norvell is going to know who is tired of being laughed at, and he's going to be able to put them in a position to succeed. And there's a lot of of things that are sort of I mean, look look at Texas right now, look at Michigan, look at Nebraska. Rebuilding an iconic brand does not happen just because you're an iconic brand. It's hard. I mean, even Alabama spent years lost in the wilderness before Nick Saban came in. So there's no guarantees of what's ahead. Um, I don't think that could be more clear. But the other thing is we're living in a little bit of a different era. The transfer portal has made it easier to go out and get some guys at key positions, which has been a huge problem at Florida State. I mean, where you have some immensely talented players in some areas and some positions that had just completely atrophied. Um, I think the beauty for Florida state, quite frankly, is that you're in the ACC, not the SEC Mm -hmm. and becoming the second best team in the ACC is not that hard anymore. Um, But the big question, I mean, if you're a Florida state fan booster, anybody who's been around this program for a long time, the big question is not like, Hey, can we get back to a point where we're competing with, uh, you know, North Carolina and, if we're competing for, you know, second place in the ACC Atlantic, assuming we ever get back to, to having divisions, the question is, when are we on the same page with Clemson again? Right. And, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know the answer. I know that it wasn't that long ago, though, that they were neck and neck. So, uh, you know, you have to believe that there's a way, a path back to that. But it is I, you know, part of the reason that we did this story, and I think that so many people wanted to talk for this story, was that like, you're not going to get back back to that point. You're not going to build this bridge to future success by pretending like all the bad stuff didn't happen. The only way that you're going to get there is to do a genuine autopsy of what went wrong and try to fix it moving forward. I do. You know, again, everybody sort of, I, I said when we were going through drafts of this story, I didn't want it to turn into that sort of cliched behind the music, like everybody went through shit and then came out on the other end with a very <laughs> positive thing, like everything's trending up at the end. I, I don't know if it's trending up. I, I, I don't, I can't, I don't want to say that. I don't know that there's a happy ending There's here. no evidence of, <laughs> right. That does not exist. I, I don't know if there's a happy ending here, but I will say that everybody that I talked to seem to think Mike Norvell was a good coach who had the, the, the right approach to be successful that Michael offered is a great hire who is going to start pulling people in the right direction that David Coburn has done a good job of mending fences between the boosters and the athletics department and, and bringing those pieces together under one roof has been an incredibly positive step. Like, and a lot and a lot of this is just that foundation is not the stuff that's going to show up on the field. People aren't going to see that in the standings. You're not going to watch uh, a game on Saturday and say, boy, we can really see all those steps coming to fruition. That, that's all happening behind the scenes. But that's the stuff that was crumbling behind the scenes while you were winning that led to where we are now. So I think I think there is real positives going on. It's just I don't know the timeline for when you actually start to feel like all of that has, has blossomed into something bigger. Okay. I'm going to give you the option here before you go, David, you have to one or the other, either you go that son of a bitch cave to the media, or you have to (laughs) say something complimentary about me as a person and journalist. Oh, God. That son of a bitch cave to the media.
MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast wherever you get your podcasts.